Hi folks, I'm Alan Watt and this is Cutting Through the Matrix on the 10th of February 2011. Uh, to get things out of the way, I always start off by telling you to go into the website. It's my website, cuttingthroughthematrix.com and bookmark all the other sites you see listed there. These are the alternate sites. If you find sticking downloads, you'll find it's, it's because so many folk go into the comm site at once. So try these alternate sites if you experience this. And uh, remember, too, all those sites carry audios, hundreds of audios for download, and they carry a lot of transcripts, too, in English if you want for print-up. If you want transcripts in other languages, go into Alan Watt Sentient, sentinel.eu. You'll see that listed there as well. And you can take your pick from the choice offered to you. And remember, too, you're not in to bring me to you. I don't bring on advertisers and uh, to sell you products. So it's up to you to keep me going. This is a kind of novel way of doing it. Generally fails. I've watched folk in the past because folk uh, don't tend to donate and so on. That's just the way it is in this modern age we live in where they think everything is free. But uh, you can buy the books and the discs that I have for sale, and that hopefully will keep me uh, just ticking over a little bit more or a bit longer, I should say. And the costs are pretty high here. Now, from the U.S. to Canada, you can order by using a personal check. You can use an international postal money order from your post office. You can send cash. And you can also use PayPal. Use the donation button you'll see on the site, at the com site, and uh, follow it up by an email with the name, address, and order I'll get it out to you. Across the rest of the world, you have PayPal again for ordering or donating. And don't forget donations, because please, uh, they really come in handy, even though it's only a dollar here and there. It comes in handy at the end of the month. And you can also use um, Western Union in Europe and elsewhere to Canada, a direct wire transfer, or you can go cheaper way. I think uh, MoneyGram also can wire, but uh, they can give you the choice of giving you a check, which you post over to me, that's a lot cheaper still, and it's probably the best way to go if you're watching the pennies. And some people just send cash again, but that's what happens. It's across the rest of the world. Uh, I do get lots of uh, people getting in touch from all countries, including China, once in a while, which is kind of surprising, and sometimes the mail actually gets through. Now, we live in a, a big changing society, a deliberately planned changing society, uh, it's, it's supposed to go through these phases, and, and some of these phases last maybe 15, 20 years, some 30, some 50, because uh, you find that a big the committee that runs the world uh, that goes under different uh, branches of it, is it the Royal Institute of International Affairs, the Council on Foreign Relations, Trilateral Commission, they're all part of the same group, really, and specializing in different areas and different functions, but they've been working hard for over 100 years to bring about a global society, and like Rockefeller said, you cannot um, make an omelet without breaking eggs. What you're seeing now with mass immigration into different countries in Europe, etc., and the mayhem that's caused by it as everybody settles and readjusts is all part of making the omelet, apparently, 
and so was bringing down the cultures as well. Tony Blair said that he'd have to destroy uh, what was left of the British culture once and for all, and that blew out into the papers uh, from his deputy prime minister uh, after he was out of office. So uh, it's a deliberate plan on the go, as I say, and it's been carried out in other countries as well. It's strange to live through this knowing it was coming because I've watched other other parts of the 5, 10, 15, 20, and 50-year plans in my own lifetime. I've watched them happening. I've watched the complete integration of Europe using the same language uh, that we get today when uh, the president of the U.S. meets with the prime minister of Canada and Mexico and others, and they're using exactly the same language as they did with Europe, lying to the public as they integrate us all into one. Back with more after this break. Hi folks, we're back and we're cutting through the matrix. Talking about the, the big world plan, of course, and it's no secret because if you into academia, especially into their archives and their universities, and you look at the United Nations archives as well, uh, they go through their 10, 20, 50 year plans and uh, put things up there. So it, it covers every basis, really, every facet of society and where they want to take society as a whole. And uh, even including all the, the, they understand too there'll be a lot of conflicts with mass immigration to certain countries as they deliberately try and deculturalize pre-existing nations or ex-nations as you call them, they call them states now. And um, that's all part of it too, uh, so that they can't return to the old nationalistic system they had before, which they blame for causing all the wars. But it's uh, ironical too, because you find that the ones who set up the organizations that set up the United Nations and its precursor, the League of Nations, were the biggest bankers on the planet who funded all these wars and helped to promote a lot of them too. And you'll find some of that information in an Anglo-American establishment by Professor Carl Quigley, who was the official historian for this group and got access to their archives. He fills in the blank bits in history that uh, the other boys deliberately keep out. It's quite fascinating to read it. But we're run, as I say, by a system that knows where it's going. Uh, Those in power, the dominant minority, would never give up power in any era, never, ever. Uh, neither for democracy or for the, for the Chartist movement or whatever else. They won't give up power. They'll give you uh, an appearance of giving up power, but in reality it's still the same group at the top running the whole show. has to be because of the richest people on the planet, you see. And everything runs on this odd thing called cash or money. Civilization itself really was born out of the advent of money and someone setting a value on something. Because cities are artificial constructs, they have no function in nature, they have no function to an agricultural people who are living on the land, or even nomadic peoples. So cities depend on everything coming into them, and everyone in the city rents and buys and so on, and they need this thing called money. Plato went into that, and other, uh, other philosophers of ancient times went into that. They called them the beehives, and through the beehives they would bring forth this wonderful utopia down the road somewhere. And that's where we're in today. We're going into the depopulation from the rural areas as the jack-up taxes look crazy. Amazing increases even here in Canada. And um, if you live on the land, 
and also uh, the cost of fuel will go up and eventually rationing will come in and non-essential people will not be able to travel. That is on the agenda for agenda to, for, for the 21st century from the United Nations if you bore to look into it. No private vehicles at all. And uh, that's all happening as we live today. Most folk don't care, don't notice, because they watch television and they're lulled by professionals into a form of hypnosis uh, every night when they come back from work. And the, the younger ones are into their virtual worlds where they can feel power for the only, the only time in their life they can actually have power in a virtual world as they walk around uh, with, with some kind of body ten times bigger than Schwarzenegger. And the women all look as though if they fell on, on their chests, they would bounce back up again. That's literally the world they're into, the, the, what they think is a perfect world. And I was thinking about that the other night too, because when you look at these virtual characters, I call them cartoons because that's all they are really. Um, when you look at them, uh, they're all pretty much the same, same kind of face and, all, and so on. And I noticed years ago that Hollywood started churning out movies where every actor looked pretty much like the last actor, as opposed to the, the old movies from the 50s and 60s. We did a variety of, of types, more natural kind of guys you'd meet in the street. And, um, and the same with the women, too. And, of course, then you find out after reading papers and papers and magazines down through your life, they get plastic surgery, and they go to the same plastic surgeon. And there's actually... There's actually a kind of Hollywood look which they promote, so they all end up looking like Baxter's peas in a can, all exactly the same. So therefore, it makes you everyone feel imperfect, and you don't match up. So it's interesting to see, as I say, when you go into this virtual world, the youngsters all end up picking these very, very similar faces and so on, and uh, that's where they feel they have power over uh, their cartoon, <laughs> and that's all it is really. And they take it seriously because they project it themselves, their own ego, onto their character. And as I say, in some countries, their virtual world has spilled into the real world, like like South Korea, where they ended up getting knife fights with different gangs who were actually participating in the same kind of thing in the virtual world that spilled into the real world. So that's how much you can be manipulated. The world, really, in science itself, science was brought out to truly... Um, elevate uh, a small minority who knew where they were going for hundreds of years, by the way. Hundreds of years as they fought against the old churches and so on to eradicate their competition uh, because the churches held sway over the minds of the general public and uh, the scientific elite eventually uh, made it up there. First through occultism, etc. That's what they used to pretend they were into as a cover in reality, even in medieval times, they were practicing basic, very primitive sciences and recording their studies. They called it the underground stream for a long, long time. And then they broke out with Rosicrucianism, still with the occult facade, because if you attach occultism to our mystery, like Adam Weishaupt said, the people will flock in like crazy, get lots of members, so, and they're willing fools, they'll do what they're told. So they eventually they came up down through the ranks and through mastery of their sciences, they eventually became kind of masters uh, to an extent over countries because they went into the weapons industry big time and they became very valuable and necessary to those who ruled, you see. Um, Albert Pike talks a bit about this too in his book Morals and Dogma. 
He said that uh, we shall, by using and basically he's hinting at manipulating the stock market even, he says we shall gain power and influence and become the masters over the masters of the world. They're really talking about this particular movement where reason and rationality, supposedly, as they call it, would take over from, from superstition, as they called the religions. We're in that system today. It's been here for a long time. Uh, again, it's well-funded by bankers. The bankers who started up the Milner Group had their sons working across the world to foment uh, revolutions and wars. That's again in, in Carol Quigley's book, uh, The Tragedy and Hope and the Anglo-American Establishment, and well-documented too from their own records. And I have some books here written by some of the members, those early members that verify that too. So... We're not living through happenstance, things that just happen out the blue. Nothing happens out the blue on a big scale. We're living through a planned agenda, uh, including this this new, this world government type system, where they truly believe that through scientific techniques, and that's what eugenics is all about, and uh, now call it too uh, neuroscience, which, which is taken over from psychology and psychiatry and behaviorism, neuroscience, they can condition people and ultimately, literally, and they mean it. Now, I've watched quite a few videos from DARPA and so on where they, they chip people's brains to, to see how they can control them. It's not to help people. It's to control people. Science has always been on, on uh, getting funding to find ways of controlling populations. That's what the Huxleys were on about. That's what um, so many other authors have been on about. Control is the main thing. The other night I watched a disc that was sent to me, and uh, Jose Delgado was on it. He, was, he worked for the FBI, CIA. He worked with MKUltra. And he was the guy who was well-known for putting um, basically a chip into the brain of a charging bull. And by flicking the switch like a remote control, you can make it stop and turn circles. But even that is meant to make you think, well, it's just a bull. And um, they were already doing that with people in Tavistock Institute, according to Aldous Huxley, who mentions it in his Berkeley uh, talks. He mentions that he was so excited, too, when he talked about how they could actually alter people's behavior by putting wires, electrical wires, into their brain. So mental hospitals have been vital for experimentation uh, on people who basically have been shunned by society, uh, deserted by relatives, and they can do as they wish, uh, more so in the past perhaps than today. But believe me, the history of psychology, behaviorism, and the social sciences is a horror show, absolute absolute horror show uh, that you have to force yourself to go through, study, and for the videos that are out there, actually watch them to see what these characters have been up to, well-funded from the top. I used to wonder about the guys who did all of this, you know, and it's a particular training they go through to desensitize them. You'll find them slicing up brains, of course, neuroscience from the early 1900s right to the present day. And I saw a, a video by Persinger, who's worked, he lives in Canada, but he's worked, he's a professor, and he's worked with uh, the CIA and the Pentagon in the past, that's on his resume, and, and he's big into finding ways of controlling the mind. And he gets his students to slice all these brains up underneath and slices and stare at them, look at them, just like they have for a hundred years. Uh, and that really is a process simply to desensitize them because if there's nothing obvious on the brain itself, abnormality, what's the point in slicing them all and staring at every slice over and over and over again? 
And what happens in the student is they become desensitized, they feel superior. They can't talk about this to their, their classmates, uh, their outside people, I should say, uh, or their parents and friends. They're now a member of an elitist club themselves. That's how they see it. And they, they, they're actually being taught to divorce their natural emotions from uh, the, the hard left brain uh, faculties of critical analysis. And that really can create a monster down the road. These are the guys who will uh, put, that actually they do. They, they do more than just put chips in the brains of rats like they do today. Uh, they've actually tested a lot of things on humans in the past. And it's an utter horror show, as I say. And Russia, the Soviet Russia, I watched one, an old one from, I think, the 30s when they were promoting it over in Britain and America, how wonderful their sciences had advanced. And they actually show you uh, cutting the heads of dogs after they had drained the blood, then pumping it back in with the heads, and the dog would be semi-conscious. They thought that was fantastic. Great breakthrough for the miracle of science. Back with more after this. Hi folks, we're back, cutting through the matrix, just talking about the, some of the history of neuroscience and behaviorism and uh, psychology and the horrors that's been committed in the past, kept quiet from the public, of course, and they'll always show you the little hamsters with the little brain implant or a rat. Even today they show this, this nonsense to make you think that's all they're up to. But getting back to what I was saying about the Soviet Union, this information that they were gleaning there when they were using dogs' heads. And believe you me, they weren't just using dogs' heads. Understand how that's put across. They, they'll show you something which, well, it's not a human head. Well, they, yeah, they did use human heads as well. In fact, in the Soviet story, they showed you a little clip uh, which, uh, where they have all these folk lined up in beds all lying down and the tops of their skulls were all off. These folk had all been living and of course by the time they're finished they'll all be dead. And this is the price they claim that the sacrifice they have to make for science, you see. An incredible rush, an incredible push for controlling of the mind. And we've had it all our lives, by the way, in many other ways. We've had their conditioning in school. We've had the media taking over and giving us partial truths, often complete lies, but never complete truths on anything. Never, ever. Completely misled. You, you, most of the media actually, and include a lot of the documentaries they give you, even especially from the BBC, do more to slant the, the, your impressions at the end of it and give you the story. They slant it by omission uh, of a lot of data rather than give you complete data. It's always slanted by omission. Very simple trick, of course, to make you think uh, the way that they, they want you to think. You understand, we've always been under forms of control, and the last bastion is control of the mind. They admit that themselves. And my goodness, how much of your tax money has been put into that, you'll never, ever guess, never, ever guess. It's phenomenal, and it's ongoing. You just have to look at even an article like this, and it's, it's a handout to the media, and it's, it says, hat's amazing. Oh, very funny. The creativity cap, it says. And uh, it says, um, scientists, that's again, now the priests, of course, it's just called scientists. Now, you don't have to say who, what scientists, scientists, and it's like saying experts, have created a real-life thinking cap which works by zapping electricity through the brain. Well, that's not new. I read something last year about that, too. And 
uh, but it's getting pushed further, of course. This is the weird-looking headwear has had extraordinary results, and experts believe it could help people be more creative. It's to help you be creative, you understand, to help you. That's why they're doing all this. The device was dreamt up by the University of Sydney's Centre for the Mind in Australia and suppresses the left side of the brain to encourage the more creative right side into action. So in other words, it will kill off a little bit of your logical side and, and your right one will take over with spatial abilities and so on. That's what they claim. This is but health, but Centre Director Alan Snyder said students hoping to use it to swat up before exams would be disappointed. He said you wouldn't use the study to, or to help your memory. It won't help your memory, in other words, for, for this short-term memory studying. It says, you would use this if you wanted to look at a problem and knew, well, you can take drugs for that. Folk took LSD in the past and saw a thing, everything completely different. Anyway, it says, if you, want, if you wanted to look at the world just briefly with a child's view, if you wanted to look outside the box. The device, which uses two electricity conductors, significantly boosted results in simple maths tests. Out of a sample of 60 participants, three times as many people who wore the cap were able to complete it uh, compared to those who tried it without. The cat was inspired by accident victims. They always say it always to do it to help accident victims. A documentary I watched the other day too showed you one of the DARPA people they're always on about um, a, a quadriplegic uh, who they're trying to get to use a chip to think his emails. And this is Pentagon stuff here. Pentagon, that's, that's who's behind it all. The military industrial boys, they want to find how to control the brain. Not for this little paraplegic, but for everyone. That's definitely coming, you know. Definitely coming. And a lot of folk, because they're being conditioned, especially the young, that it's wonderful and it's science and they go, they can go surfing in their head forever. Uh, well, they'll rush into it, of course. They'll rush right into it. But remember what Charles Galton Darwin says. He says the elite themselves won't, won't alter themselves. They must remain wild, wild. They must have their capacities intact because they'll be guiding the planet Earth, basically the ship of Earth, and they'll have to have all their abilities for survival working to the maximum. It means, you see, that you won't need them. Other authors have said, like Kessler, you won't need these abilities because the state will be making all your decisions for you. You understand what we're all going into through all of this? But isn't it wonderful that they can actually make you want it? And that's what the computer was put out there for to do, to make you want more and more like a drug. Quite interesting. And it's all leading to the same place. Uh, Sweden's one of the top countries, even since the 70s, of using prisoners for computer brain interfaces. Anyway, it says, and they're one of the top socialist countries in the world. It says, Alan said the goal was to suppress habits and opinions gathered through life experiences to help users see problems and situations as they really appear. Now, that's a very misleading statement there. As they really appear. So they want to suppress your habits and your opinions gathered through life experiences. Yes, your life experiences. But they want you to see them uh, as they want you to see them. That's what he's really saying here. You see, we know that for certain types of brain damage and abnormalities or injuries, people who suddenly have damage to the left temporal lobe will burst out in the arts or other types of creative activities. Well, that's a, a tiny, tiny, tiny minority of brain accident victims to that lobe. Most of them don't have that at all. The dream is that one day we may be able to stimulate the brain in a particular way to give you, just momentarily, an unfiltered view of the world. Well, that would be a great way to get a download of propaganda, wouldn't it? 
you know, the proper, the proper truth from the authorities. Back with more after this. You're listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network because you can handle the truth. Hi, folks. We're back and we're cutting through the matrix. Psychiatry, too, is it really is founded on this whole principle that one day they could really control the whole brain by cutting it up and dissecting it, shocking it, probing it, finding out what probing did, what part did you destroy here, destroy there, what didn't work now. This has all been done, of course, under the skies of psychiatry. And um, there's an article out today, for instance, to show you this. It's rampaging ahead, as, as always. It says, doctor and woman patients. A picture of a doctor and a woman's patient, probably posed by, you know, because they, they, they have actors to pose for these photographs. 1998, it says, mental illness lies behind a third of patients' visits to the doctors. Right? So I wonder why in a place like Britain, that, uh, that, you know, which is absolutely destitute, and people live in, in, in increasing poverty, and they've been told often that they won't get jobs in their whole lifetime. I wonder why they're depressed, eh? So the answer's here, though. The answer's here. You see, the doctors are getting paid to, to, to find more illnesses. If you can find more mental illnesses, you get bonus cash awards for being a doctor. Family doctors will be entitled to share in a £150 million bonus pot for identifying problems in adults and children that would reduce the risk of depression and other mental health problems the government has announced. The government. It's it's almost, it's it's so up high, isn't it, the government has announced. It's like experts say. Same thing. With mental health already costing the National Health Service £10 billion a year, which is nothing compared to what they're spending and everything else, a figure forecast to double in real terms over the next two decades. Ministers are, ministers are politicians, by the way, calling for a new approach that tackles the underlying causes of illnesses, which represent a third of the GP cases. By 2013, the government says 15% of the £1 billion financial incentives that hold family doctors to account for high-quality care, I wonder where they get high-quality care, will be focused on prevention, especially in mental health. Given the state of the economy, there's rising concern that unemployment and job insecurity could cause cause a rise in such problems. So it's a reactive depression. You don't drug folk and so on uh, for a a reactive. You're reacting against the circumstances in the system. Hmm? But they ain't going to fix that for you. In a paper accompanying the strategy released yesterday, the government says that implementing seven mental health early intervention programs, ranging from dealing with children with conduct disorders to talking therapies to new debt advice schemes could cost £2.55 billion but create £4.54 billion in saving and another £4.85 billion in benefits over a 26-year period. For example, it suggested that the National Health Service teams who target people experiencing a first episode of psychosis could be expanded across England. The health service could save £290 million over 10 years and wider society would benefit to the tune of another £250 million. Pounds. So, in other words, they're looking for more customers. They know they'll be created because when you get born into a system that's really like the Great Depression that never ends, and up to financial depression that never ends, and all you hear is bad, bad news, and that's why most folk emigrated in the past. You get nothing but bad news coming out there. Factories closing down, going to China, this, that, the other and unemployment, 
uh, and more and more taxis all the time, uh, well, yeah, you get rather depressed. That's why folk drink so much. They make sure there's lots of cheap, cheap enough booze to, to keep you stoned. Russia did the same thing. They always do that, you know, in such systems, socialist systems, because in Orwell's 84, you, you know, you had to line up for your food that was not food at all. It was like a food. It was like a meat, but it wasn't meat at all. But you could grab a bottle of this cheap vodka anywhere at all. And that was the same in Russia. Very cheap. Because keeping you stoned all the time stops you from rampaging on the streets. Maggie Thatcher said that herself when she extended the, the drinking hours in all the bars. She says, better to have them in the bars drunk, spending their welfare money, than having them marching on the streets and complaining about what really is going on. <laughs> Democracy is a wonderful thing, isn't it? It's amazing we want to give this to the whole world. Well, you know who owns democracy, don't you? And it's not the people. It's not the people. But it's a good facade. It's a good facade because even Bertrand Russell, Lord Bertrand Russell, who, who certainly should know since he was up there in government as a lord, uh, he said himself, democracy is a great cover because the people actually think it's their government. Quite good, isn't it? But when you go into mind control, as I say, it's always been the goal of those at the top. Mind control. How to get a perfectly obedient and behave, well-behaved society. And you'll find... With Aldous Huxley, you go into Huxley's histories to find out who these guys are. They're related to the Darwins, they're related to all the big players of the past. And, uh, of course, Julian Huxley was a lot worse than Aldous Huxley and more forthright in what he wanted to, to happen to the public and mind control aspects. He wanted all children to be utterly brainwashed by the world state, and that's why he belonged to UNESCO. He also wanted to drastically reduce the inferior types by abortion, and he belonged, he was, he got awards from family planning associations for coming out with that beauty. Anyway, it says here in Aldous Huxley's Brave New World Revisited, he says, in the two preceding chapters, I've described the techniques of what may be called wholesale mind manipulation as practiced by the greatest demagogue and the most successful salesman in recorded history. But no human problem can be solved by wholesale methods alone. The shotgun has its place, but so has the hypodermic syringe. In the chapters that follow, I shall describe some of the more effective techniques for manipulating not crowds, not entire publics, but isolated individuals. You always start with the individual because technically most people are much the same as everybody else in the crowd, you see. And this is in the course of this epoch-making experiments on the conditioned reflex. Ivan Pavlov, this is the guy who got all the acclaim and and peace prizes and all the rest of it for uh, shocking dogs and giving them nervous breakdowns. Uh, quite, uh, again, without emotion. He just stood there and said, oh, interesting, you know, as things getting fried. Uh, but he also used children too. Now, as I said before, they've hidden more of what they've done from the public until now. It's only now that some truth is being allowed out of academia, who've always known what they're up to, but uh, as to what they were really doing. Ivan Pavlov was also, and I've got photographs of it and some video of it, uh, putting the same ch- children, children, orphans, through the same experiments, having them strapped down. He had holes cut in their neck, and he, had, he was collecting the saliva, giving them shocks, and trying to put in these conditioned reflexes and so on. Quite, they're beautiful heroes of history, these characters, aren't they? Beautiful heroes. We should all follow them, right? Anyway, Pavlov observed that when subjected to prolonged physical or psychic stress, lab animals, I guess that includes the children too, exhibit all the symptoms of a nervous breakdown. Refusing to cope any longer with intolerable situation, their brains go on strike, and so to speak, and others 
and either stop working altogether, the dog loses consciousness, or else resorts to slowdowns and sabotage. The dog behaves unrealistically or develops the kind of physical symptoms which in a human being we would call hysterical. Well, hysteria, that's the last part before... See, you're, you're no, you know you're for the chop. You see the same thing in the old Vietnam uh, videos will show you where the Vietnamese are on are down uh, on their hunkers, as they're called, they're hunkered down, their hands on their heads, and and they're they're peeing themselves, pooping themselves, and they're, they're just shaking all over. That's what happens because you're, you're, it's, a, it's a last appeal to to humanity not to kill them. That's what it is, and, and animals have it too. That's really what it is, folks. That's really it's not just a uh, it's just not a physical thing that happens. It's a, it's a psychic thing. They were supposed to recognize as something in distress. But, of course, scientists don't see it that way. Some animals are more resistant to stress than others. It says dogs possessing what Pavlov calls a strong excitatory constitution break down much more quickly than dogs of a merely lively as opposed to a choleric or agitated temperament. Similarly, weak and inhibitory dogs reach the end of their tether much sooner than do calm, imperturbable dogs. But even the most stoical dog is unable to resist indefinitely. If the stress to which he is subjected is sufficiently intense or sufficiently prolonged, he will end by breaking down as abjectly and as completely as the weakest of his kind. Now, why am I talking about this? It's because they've been using this all over, and they're still using it in all these camps where they do torture. You see? Utter torture. It's amazing how civilization brings us closer to some beautiful ideal of humanity, isn't it? And these guys keep saying it's progress and civilization. That's what they keep telling us, progress and civilization. And it's okay as long as you're not one of the guys who are grabbed off the street and, can, and, and put under this kind of torture. But that's coming, folks. What's been done abroad to others is coming home. Because these guys know that they will bring riots upon everyone. And they're ready for it. They're ready for it. They've been creating armies, internal armies, for about 30 years now in response for what's to be done. And they have weaponry, non-lethal and lethal, of course. And even the non-lethals can be turned up to be lethal. They've got all this stuff. And they will eventually be using this on the streets of America and elsewhere as they crash the economy again, which they will do, by the way, as they trade us into a new system. Sorry, Pavlov's findings were confirmed in the most distressing manner and on a very large scale. Then he goes through the two world wars and uh, battle fatigue and all the rest of it, etc., etc. But the amazing thing was, once they'd broken them down, they could recondition them and reprogram them and find that they could, they could give them political ideologies, uh, which they'd never forget. They would be mind-controlled forever. So first you break them down, then you recondition them. And that's what, again, the wonderful Pavlov was up to there. This technique was used, has been used fantastically well, especially in places like North Korea, for instance, still used today. And no matter, no matter um, how badly they're, they're, they're harmed by their handlers, they end up loving them, literally loving them. And that was reconfirmed again by one of the documentaries I watched on the brain uh, where uh, these two lovely heroes, again, who got prizes for it and so on, did experiments on monkeys. You've all seen those, I'm sure, where they deprived monkeys for a year. They put them in the hole, they called it. No contact, no nothing, uh, when they were very young. And, um, and and they brought them up. And these, these monkeys were just basket cases forever. Other ones, they would give them a dressed-up dummy to look like mummy. And... Um, 
and eventually they would, would eventually down the roads, mummy would give give off shocks and so on. So they're totally confused. And rather than jump off the the dummy mummy, uh, they'd hug them all the more. And that's why abused people love their abuser. By the way, it creates an exaggerated form of need out of a basic instinct, which is a natural thing to be bonded with the mother. You'll actually crave more affection from the one who abuses you. That's what Orwell had in his 1984 book. Amazing how abuse can be worked on the public. It can be abused, it can be used in so many other ways on a mass scale as well. Never forget that. Abuse has many, there's many techniques of creating abuse. And we also have, of course, uh, people like Huxley and others talking about how the people would come to love their servitude. What we're coming into, a world of service. This is, your, your duty will be to serve this, the world state. We see Obama, he passed the law in Britain and in the U.S. We saw the same thing getting passed in Britain with this new coalition uh, communist government. And um, and every, everybody in Britain eventually is to do at least two months per year national service. And it doesn't have to be just in the military. It doesn't have to be just in the military. So... They go into breaking points in the individual and so on. By the way, there's a professor in Canada who came up with the idea for sensory deprivation. When you see those guys uh, that are put in places like Guantanamo, etc., they have these hoods on their heads. Well, it was born by a guy in Canada, a professor here, Dr. Uh, professor Hebb, I think his name was, H-E-B. And, uh, and the big gloves on as well to stop you having physical contact with a human being as such and to disorientate you as well. And then, of course, they have them uh, crouching against a wall. Uh, they can't sit down on the floor. They've got to crouch down again in that hunkery position, which creates a tremendous strain on the body. And you feel no human touch at all. You can't see what's going on. And it, it's, it's the same techniques, basically, they're using as Pavlov was using as well. It all came from these wonderful Nobel Peace Prize winners and stuff like that. You know, great scientists, the, the experts, you understand, the, the guys were supposed to follow. Anyway, Huxley goes on about uh, how how Hitler used torture, mass extermination of different so-called inferior types. You know, Jews, gypsies, uh, also had Slavs galore as well, all slaughtered. And um, they go into the, the types of tortures used, but not just him as well. The Soviet Union was doing it long before Hitler. Hitler got a lot of the ideas and, and techniques from the Soviets, and that again came out in the Soviet story. Excellent video to, to watch. It says, um, they go on about the creation of stress just for the, the right time, length of time is a particular, they've got it so, they've got it down to an art. It says, it's simply a matter of applying the right amount of stress for the right length of time. Then to the treatment, the prisoner will be in a state of neurosis or hysteria and will be ready to confess whatever his captors want him to confess to. But confession is not enough. A hopeless neurotic is of no use to anyone. What the intelligent and practical dictator needs is not a patient to be institutionalized or a victim to be shot, but a convert who will work for the cause. It says, turning once again to Pavlov, he learns that on their way to the point of final breakdown, dogs become more than normally suggestible. Now, they're really talking about people. I hope you understand that. And the behaviorists know this too. They've got a lot more video than I've got. This is new, new behavior patterns can easily be installed while the dog is at, at or near the limit of its cerebral endurance, and those new behavioral patterns seem to be interactable. 
interdictable. It says, the animal in which they have been, uh, been implanted cannot be deconditioned. That's permanent. Uh, that which has learned under stress will remain an integral part of its makeup. You can create terrorists this way. Do you understand? Do you really think it's infer- that they've admitted even that the, the, the top general it went, it was for the U.S., who was in charge of all this torture stuff, said they were just rounding people up from marketplaces and so on. People who knew nothing at all, they didn't have any information to impart. What were they really doing with them? What were they really doing with them? The creating the terrorists for down the road. Who'll be on the payroll of the CIA? That's what you do. Psychological stresses can be produced in many ways. Dogs become disturbed when stimuli are unusually strong, when the interval between a stimulus and the customer response is unduly prolonged, and the animal is left in a state of suspense. When the brain is confused by stimuli that runs counter to what the dog has learned to expect, when stimuli make no sense within the victim's established frame or reference, furthermore, it's been found that the deliberate induction of fear, rage, or anxiety markedly heightens the dog's suggestibility. If these emotions are kept at a high pitch of intensity for a long time, the brain goes on strike. When this happens, new behavior patterns may be installed with the greatest of ease, it says here. So don't think for an ins- a minute uh, they're talking about just dogs here. And as I say, Pavlov experimented on a lot, an awful lot of humans and prisoners and children and children. Pavlov also was brought in to bring in the same school system that we have running across the world today. How to indoctrinate children perfectly in the schoolroom. FDR's wife went over to see him, and she thought Pavlov was. She said he was her. He, he was her hero. And she said it was so wonderful to, to observe all these well-behaved children. Not spontaneously, the American children going to school, but they're so well behaved. And she thought that was just wonderful for the socialist system. You know, for those folk down there, you know, the peasant class. You think something's changed somewhere? Where have you been? Back with more after this break. Hi folks, we're back and cutting through the matrix and uh, by this hour's flying in, so I better take calls. It's Patrick from Ontario there. Are you there, Patrick? Yes. Hello, Mr. Watt? Yes. Thank you very much uh, for taking my call. God bless you. I'll try to be as brief as possible. Um, I just returned uh, this weekend. I was at uh, the university that I attended when uh, before I was awake and I was helping a friend of mine with a political science uh, examination, preparing for it. And um, uh, <laughs> chock full of uh, propaganda, indoctrination, socialism. Mm-hmm. Um, one uh, example at the very beginning of the course, there's a con man who starts talking. He's very persuasive. He uses big words, so if you're stupid, you might think he's smart. He basically tells a story about if you saw a child in a in a puddle, would you save him even if it cost you your $300 shoes? And he says, well, most people say yes. So he says, well, why don't you just give that money to UNICEF? You know, as mm-hmm. if that's that... That makes sense as if that is just yeah. uh, every penny is going to help those people. Um, there's also mentioning something about how 
because we benefit from the HST, we're obligated to pay it, even though obviously it's not every one of our pennies returning to us. Um, and there was also the professor talking about how communism is not prevalent in the world today, even though how did, like, like you've done very well uh, making clear to us who were previously unaware about like how we built China and how mm -hmm. that's not going to benefit uh, us. Um, so my, my point being is that uh, for anyone out there, um, um, I, I was just there and I did experience that this is going on, this indoctrination is going on. I got I got back on the subway and I saw ads for grants. Come be a writer for us. Get a get a grant. I yep. watched TV and I saw a commercial for kindergarten, government kindergarten. And I just thought for a second, what what would Stalin do? What would Hitler do? Yeah. Would they rather have the children with their parents, or would they yeah. rather have them where they can control them, or where they can mold their minds from very 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 young? That's what Russell said. If we can get the children very young through scientific indoctrination, which had been imperfected by 1930. He said that uh, the input from parents will be null and void. It will, take, will not take on the child. And so the state will give them their new values. And that's what's happened. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. No, and, and it's very simple. The way that universities and the classes that I've attended, because I did attend many, many classes in the university, the way that the intelligence is evaluated is by the priest presents the truth, and you need to repeat that on command. Mm -hmm. And yeah. the problem with that is, okay, well, what's you're only as smart as the information is true. So yeah. if you are memorizing a bunch of false information, you're just a robot. You're yes. a useful idiot. If you can't think critically, if you can't take a second to think, wait a minute, am I getting played here? Is there something going on here? Then you're not intelligent. You just have a good memory of useless information, and someone's going to be taking... Um, advantage of you. Um, so yes, uh, thank you very much uh, for taking my call, Mr. Watt. Uh, as soon as I am uh, able to find employment, I will get funding out to you because your your work is worth its weight in gold. Um, and uh, God bless you. And uh, oh, and yeah, and very very briefly, um, for anyone who who hasn't figured it out yet, if you still have a functioning brain, there is a war on you, on your mind, on your body, on your soul. It is going on 24/7. They have injected you with shit. They are putting stuff in your food. They are dumping stuff on you. There is stuff in your water. So if you want to survive, the only thing that matters is what are you going to do about it. So God, God bless you, Mr. Watt. And uh, any goon that's got a problem with you has got a problem with me. So take care. Thanks for calling. Take care, too. And it's quite right, too, uh, that the education system is there to suit the state to produce a perfect citizen, not to enlighten you. That's always been the way of it. From Hamish myself, from Ontario, Canada, it's good night. We may your God or your God's go with you.